Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Melina Marquetta. Melina is a best-selling, multi-award winning author. She wrote the absolute classic of Australian fiction, Looking for Ella Brandy, and her work includes fantasy, YA, and crime fiction. Today, Melina is joining me to discuss her latest novel, The Place on Dalhousie. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing and literary culture. And each week we feature an Australian writer and get into their latest work. Now on the Great Conversations podcast, you have a chance to hear more of these discussions, discover behind the scenes and get into the books that you love. Now, can you help me discover more about you and what you love about the Great Conversations podcast? 2SER is currently running a listener survey. If you go to 2SER.com forward slash survey and answer a few simple questions, it lets me know what you're enjoying about the podcast and what you want to hear more of, maybe what you want to hear less of. Just go to 2SER.com forward slash survey. Now, the place on Dalhousie begins in Queensland, where Rosie Gennaro has fled her life and is working as a carer when floods ravage the town. Jimmy Haler is in town volunteering with the SES, and the two come together for a few brief nights. Two years later, Rosie is back in Sydney with her young son, living in the house her father built. The house, still occupied by Martha, Seb Gennaro's second wife, the woman Rosie can barely bring herself to talk to. Join me as we travel to Sydney's inner west and get into the place on Dalhousie. I'm joined in the studio right now by Melina Marquetta. Melina is a best-selling, multi-award-winning author. Of course, she wrote Looking for Alla Brandy, but her work includes fantasy and crime fiction. Today, she's joining me to discuss her latest novel, The Place on Dalhousie. Melina, welcome. Hi, Andrew. So lovely to have you here. I am... I'm excited about this book. This book made me laugh. It made me cry a lot. Um, And as the name suggests, The Place on Dalhousie is a very Sydney book. But we begin in Queensland, where Rosie Gennaro has fled her life and is working as a carer when floods ravage the town. Jimmy Haler is in town volunteering with the SES, and the two come together for a few brief nights. Two years later, Rosie is back in Sydney with her young son, living in the house her father built. The house still occupied by Martha, Seb Gennaro's second wife, the woman Rosie can barely bring herself to talk to. Um, I love I, I love the tension that you create, and I I feel this need when I start when I started reading. I felt this need for these two people to come together, and it felt like one of those scenarios where you have friends like this, you maybe have siblings like this, and you just see them and you just want to bang their heads together. (laughs) Did you want to bang their heads together sometimes? I did, and my big rule to myself was not to take sides. Mm. Um, And so I hope that I wrote it so evenly. So, you know, when you are introduced to the idea of Martha through Rosie's chapter, you might have a particular awful view towards her, and then, of course, you meet Martha. So, um, but yes, it's, it's, it's like a lot of, it's like what you're saying about friends you have. You just want to get them in the same room and say, look, you know, you're both in the same situation. You're both grieving, um, you know, talk to each other. But I think they have to work that out for themselves. Can I ask a little bit more about that? Because you draw your characters so beautifully, but that is, is not secondary, but you parallel that so beautifully with the way you play their perspectives off against each other. And in their grief, both Rosie and Martha, they are so reductive. They're so reductive of each other, mm. painting these. I um, I forget the name that Martha keeps calling Rosie, something oh, like a... The step monster. Oh, no, the step um, demon. The, the step, step demon. demon. That's right. Are we ever as simple as the caricatures we draw of other people? 
Um, no, and I think that you get to know that we're not that simple after you've known someone for a long time. And I think that these two women have to live together on their own um, before they work out that there's humanity in the other. Um, before that, they have Seb between them, this loving person. He doesn't mean to be between him, but between them, but his actions in marrying Martha so soon after Rosie's mum's death is, you know, it's mm. it's a pretty profound thing for um for Rosie. But it's more um that they get to share this space. I mean, that house that was so lovingly built by him or rebuilt, uh, it's in sharing that space. And then of course it's having Jimmy Haler in that house. And I always say he's metaphorically standing on the stairs between them, friends with or connected to both of them. So um, so it's where you place your characters and then you have to sit back and, and work out, okay, how am I going to get them into the same room or into the same space? And poor Jimmy. Jimmy is almost, he's almost the poster boy for unfortunate caricatures. Everyone has this image of him upon seeing him. And of course, when we meet him, we meet, you, you, you paint him as uh, sort of a, a Jesus-looking SES man at one point in early in the novel. He's just in his budgie smugglers wading through a flood, but he suffers greatly at the hands of the way people see him. Mm. Do, you ever, do you ever despair that in, in intimate relations, just as you, you point out, we can be so reductive, we can reduce people we know and should love to caricatures, that in the world we, we, we seem to do that writ large? Well, you know, I think of when I um, I taught for 10 years and I come from a girl's world. I have two sisters. I went to an all-girls school. I had a lot of female co- um, cousins. Regardless of having a boyfriend or, you know, having male friends, you know, to be part of a male world is is quite interesting. And I was teaching at a school where it was an all-boys school. And my view of boys, I used to just cross the road if I saw a bunch of boys. Um, And even when I started teaching, there were particular groups of boys where I thought, oh, they're just revolting. um, There was just something so base about them and um, and I, it, the image that I had in my head of them was really awful. And I remember I was writing Saving Francesca and one of those characters um, that I suppose was inspired by these boys was Thomas Mackey. And then I got to know them. And the, it is the humanity, um, you know, it just the, what they showed, their um, empathy and a whole lot of other things. I just thought, wow, how could I have got it wrong? And in a way, sometimes I think that that's both sides of someone. You just have to sit back and take the time to see um, both sides. And sometimes we just don't. We're just not, you know. And I feel as if I see Jimmy Haler a lot and he looks as rough as guts. You know, I um, I didn't put tattoos all over him because now tattoos, they're so cool. Um, but if he, if he was a character in the 70s, I, I would have definitely added that because he just looks rough and he's anything but. It's just a, it's a surface thing. Mm. And now Sydney. I love reading about Sydney. We, we were joking uh, before we came into the studio that where we're sitting right now is 50 metres from a bus stop where Rosie gets off uh, at one point in the, in the book. And the, the way you show me places that I, I remember or that I visit every day, it really, you've op- you open up a part of my world and show me perspectives on it that I don't have. Is Sydney a character for you in your work? How does it feel to write about your Sydney? 
Um, it's definitely a character and I um, I learned to do that back with Ella Brandy and I remember people saying to me back then and that's 27 years ago that they found it really confronting to be reading a book um, where they knew the places. It, it was almost, they said it, they were almost cringing mm. because we just don't do that as much as the Americans do or, you know, New York and London and all those places, their characters in people's stories. So for me, I just want to, for me to be able to bring to life a group of people, I have to bring the place to life. And I think anyone who lives in Sydney knows we're kind of defined by where we live mm. and sometimes not in a negative way, sometimes in a negative way. But I think that there's a particular type in the inner West or a particular type that's attracted to living in the inner West. Mm. And um, so for me to be able to create that, I have to give the area... I suppose, um, more than just a mention. And I, I call the three books, um, not even Ella Brundy, but the other three books, My, um, it's kind of my love story or my ode to the inner west because I love it. Um, I, I grew up there. I've sometimes wanted to move away and escape it, but I'm back in the middle of it, you know. And for me, it, it's just all about community. I'm really interested in, you just said that some people find it confronting. I, I love reading a book about Sydney. I mm. love walking through doors that you're never going to, to walk through um, and, and seeing streets through someone else's eyes. But you, you also recall me to, I recently read Ruth Park's Fishing in the Sticks, where she talks and reflects on the, the reaction to the harp in the South. And she was very much sort of viewed as an outsider coming from New Zealand and how dare she say these things mm. about, about Sydney. Or um, Michael Muhammad Ahmed's book uh, from a few years ago, The Lebs, where he reflected on the, um, the perspective of being uh, a young Lebanese man around the time of uh, both 9-11 and the um, the Cronulla riots and the way his Sydney didn't look like everyone else's Sydney. Do you think there is there are people that have a very narrow view of Sydney and they don't like to see it otherwise? Well, I know interstate they do. And one of the first things you hear is it's cold and there's no community. It's not as close-knit as, you know, everywhere else. Cold in terms of personality, yes. not... Weather. Um, oh, no. Yeah, sorry. Cold, in me, definitely personality. And I think I say this all the time. The inner west anyway, because I know it the most, is like a big country town, really. You bump into so many people. Um, you, Someone knows someone who knows someone. We had that conversation before. Um, so for me, it is such a community-based city, and that's not the way it's seen um, from people mm. outside. So so for me, it's also dispelling that myth. And also, like when I was a kid and I was such a big reader, um, I never read anything that reflected my life, including my culture, um, my Australian-Italian culture, but also my the place I lived in. You know, there were always books set in the country or set overseas, but I love writing about, you know, this um, – the sense of place that I have because it's important to me. So it has to be important to my characters. Yeah. We're more than just the beach in the bush. Yes. Yeah. Um, now I want to narrow it down to a particular part of Sydney, to a place on Dalhousie. Um, the value of a house and the value of a home. We talk so much about property value these days. I feel like I hear very little about the things that you just talked about, the reasons we live in places, identity and community, the things that they, they bring to us when we live in a place. And within the house that Seb built on Dalhousie, you show us Rosie and Martha connecting very differently with place and community. 
and their difficulty rec- reconciling these two to each other, it threatens to tear it apart. Where did we go so wrong in appreciating these simple things as shelter and family and, and what they mean in a community? I don't know. Um, I could say we, you know, it's interesting. I always think about religion and the, um, I suppose, the the breakdown of religion, um, you know, especially with what's happened um, over the years. And it was almost, if you had to see that in a positive way, uh, my upbringing was going to church. It was community. And then when that's taken away, what is there to replace it? So it was one of the positives of you know, church, because church was about getting together. So it's just this idea of people getting together. I feel as if we're going back to that, not to church. I mean, to community living. I feel as if that's what people are more interested in. And I was saying this the other day, you know, when you were young and you thought, when I win a million dollars, I'm going to buy a house by the beach and I'm going to, you know, all these things. And of course, first, a million dollars buys you nothing these days. (laughs) But if I had $10 million dollars, I wouldn't move. Mm. I, I would stay exactly where I was. Why would I want to live where um, I wouldn't be with my community? So it's. I think that these days I feel that people are really heading back to that community living, but we had to find another way of making that happen. And it happens with happens with your love for books. It happens with book mm. clubs. It happens with an area that has a cafe or a, um, you know, a, a kind of a main street where you find that a lot of people shop in that main street. Mm. It, and I suppose that's what attracted me to Haberfield, of course. Um, and it beautifully evokes sort of that Ramsey uh, sort of stretch of yes, shops. and because they haven't really been renovated over time. Mm. But you could go to Haberfield on a Saturday morning and you could be lined outside you know, the bakery, because there is a long line. It's mm. not a pretentious place. It's people know they're getting good food. Yeah. At the at IGA, you have to get a ticket and sit down and you're sitting next to, you know, an Italian nonna for half an hour because you know that you're going to get great quality, you know, mm. deli food. And I just feel as if restaurants, um, all the things that people mock us for, they are a place of coming together and um, and I just feel as if our need to be together isn't just online. It's certainly um, – pe- I feel as if people are moving for community a lot more than they used to. Yeah, it's, it's very similar in um, Dulwich Hill where yes. I've lived yes. for the last couple of years as well. Well, um, we didn't get political there, but we, we may in the next year. I was thinking – see, because I was thinking negative gearing and, you know, everyone's speculating and no one lives anymore. I had to keep all of that out because it's a 2011 novel mm. and it's to me it's so obvious that it was written around now but mm. set back then because this question of where will we live I think runs through the whole story. Mm. You know, one of the characters, um, you know, gone are the days where this never happened to us but where Italian kids were given a house for their wedding present. Mm. Now it's your, you know, the granny flat or the um, double garage is renovated at the back of the in-laws place for Mm. you. And that's fantastic because all... All they think of is, wow, we can um, we can save money in those two years. So mm. that idea of where will we live is so much um, an issue these days because young people can't afford um, housing. Um, but I said it in 2011 and tried to like not to go too much into that. Although someone 
you know, said to me, you did not get the pricing right because there's no way you'd be able to get a place in Haberfield for, you know. Um, but yeah, you try not to get little details like that in the way. Okay, that fascinates me too, though, because I also wondered, thinking so much about the the importance of home, uh, all the disruption that's been happening, particularly around Haberfield with West Connects recently and development and people losing their houses mm. to to this huge development that there's so much controversy over whether Sydney needs or wants it. Was any of that playing into your thinking about the book? It was. And I kept on thinking, I know where they've got their house, but I thought if I had to really be cruel... I could have set that house that Seb spent 20 years rebuilding in an area where it was going to be knocked down a couple of years later. But I thought I couldn't be that cruel. Um, But definitely it it was in my head because that area is a community-based area. Although this is is a, um, a surprising story. I remember bumping into a friend of mine. Um, from school whose mum lived in Wattle Street, which is one of the streets um, that all the houses were knocked down. And I was saying, that is so awful what happened to your parents. And she said, no, they're living in Breakfast Point now and they're loving it. And it was kind of, I didn't expect to hear that. But then I thought, of course, that's once again about community living. It's Mm. it's what people are doing. So, um, but I couldn't go into what was happening in Haberfield because I know it was heartbreaking for so many people. You know, around that, um, but I'm so surprised by how little has been affected in the the core of it. So mm. now I have to point out, we keep mentioning this name. We keep mentioning Seb's name, mm. um, and he's not a character in the book, no. but he also is. Um, I noticed when we think about the house that he built and what that means to Martha and and Rosie particularly. I noticed Martha has a lot of trouble recognising herself and getting other people to recognise the contributions that hmm. she made in the building of the place on Dalhousie. <laughs> I keep using your title as, as just in the flow of it. Rosie also, she gets she's really stuck in this notion that Seb was building a place f- as a man for the women in his life. And I wondered, like, there's some really sort of gendered thinking in, in both of their minds, mm. Martha trying to break away from it, Rosie really getting very stuck in it. Yes. How do we rethink these roles? Because it's... It's difficult for Martha. It is because she um, she would have built, helped him rebuild that house for at least, I, I don't know how many years while he was alive. And then she worked on it after he died. Um, so really she had worked on it probably um, the second longest he is being. I think it was um, Rosie, I think someone points out to Rosie that he never said um, that he built it for Rosie and her mum. He built it for his family. Yeah. And it's that word. So why does that stop us thinking of Martha as family? She mm. Just because she's the second wife. But I think that that is um, Rosie's thinking turning as well. Mm. Um, and especially more now that she has so much more responsibility. And for her, it's I have to look after myself because actually no one else is going to be doing that for me. Um, she never asks anyone to look after her. She just basically wants that space so she can look after her child. Um, So I think she comes to understand, you know, Mm. that um, women have to pretty much um, look after themselves because they can't rely on, you know, a man for a lot of reasons. One is her father died, um, you know, and it's something that she will never forget. But yeah, it's, um, 
That's why I couldn't take sides because I thought it is Rosie's house. It is Martha's house. I, I couldn't even, you know, someone said, oh, you should have involved in the story them going to, a, you know, a barrister because this would have been a legal affair. And I thought neither of them would have done that because, you know, Seb would have hated that. But um, he is a very important, for someone who never appears in the story, mm. the essence of Seb. And the original title was um, The House That Seb Built. Um, so, um, And I remember being told, don't use that title because he's not in it. And we don't want it to be a male kind of, you know, this is a house built by a man. We wanted it to have a much more generic kind of feel. There would have been a real cognitive dissonance to see yeah. Martha and, and Rosie yeah. there. Let's talk a little bit about Rosie because she is she is a fascinating character. She's one of well, as uh, she's your youngest protagonist in a in a large ensemble. She's one of, with the exception of Toto, uh, one of the youngest characters in the book. But she also has some really stuck ideas mm. that she struggles to move away from, and one particularly is family. For her, it's it's not even uh, a societal view of family. Family is her mum and dad, and she's yeah. lost them, and she's she's desolate and she's devastated, and. So she really struggles to not only have any sort of relationship with Jimmy, even though she reaches out to him, but to understand what's going on with Martha in her life and, yep. and to have friends even, it seems, in the same way that Jimmy does. Yes, and um, the only other person she considers family is the nonna who lives mm. in Sicily. Yeah, it's blood for her, whereas um, everyone else, it's it's the urban family you collect along the way, mm. which is what happened with, um, with Jimmy. Um, and it does take her a while, um, and it's only when people let her into their world that you could imagine that these very um, new relationships in the novel, they will last for a long time. Um, but she's so reluctant because it's like, no, you know, I can take care of myself, I can take care of my child and everyone else is standing in my way and you're not blood anyway, so, you know, mm. forget it. So it's kind of that old-fashioned view of, you know, even for Italians, it's, you know, I remember growing up with that sense that no one looks after you but family. Mm. Um, we were never allowed to stay over anyone's place. It was no one can look after you like family can. Um, I feel like you're challenging that in this book then. I have to because uh, my child, um, you know, it's just the two of us. She's seven years old and I have to rely on people outside my family. Of course I rely on my family, but I have to trust my child with other people and I have also over the years, you know, my friendships are family as well. And I remember when my best friend's mum died and it was, you know, she, she was still young. She was, um, as in my best friend was still, you know, maybe 40. And I remember turning up um, to her house and she said to me, I'm an orphan because her father had died a couple of years ago and she was crying. And I said, "How you aren't, you, how could you be? Mm. Um, because you've got me and you've got my family. And although, you know, she's an Aussie and, you know, I came from an Italian family, her children are my godchildren, her, my mm. godchildren are my daughter's godchildren. That That's stronger than blood. Mm. And also my child isn't my um, birth child, mm. you know. So you have to challenge that idea mm. of, um, you know, who is it that you connect with in this mm. life? And I've been fortunate enough that I connect amazingly with blood family, but my urban family is really important to me. So Jimmy then is the perfect foil to yes. Rosie. His family are, 
Well, he thinks that he thinks they're deadbeats, and then when he rediscovers them as an adult, he realizes he gets perspective. But yes. his family are his friends, and they're amazing. And I can't talk about what they do because that'll ruin parts yes. of the novel. But I've got to say, read the novel just to to see this amazing group of friends. Yes, and there's so many times in our lives, especially when we were younger, where our parents kind of you know, adopted a friend. You know, I'd, I'd have friends who were from the country when I was at university and my mother would send me to their house with a, you know, a plate of pasta or something she had made because she knew that they didn't have that. And if she knew that they had a really bad home life, oh, my God, even more. So we do that. We, we adopt people um, in our lives who are far from home and um, those people, they become, they stay part of your life. And that's what happens with Jimmy, except he's very much aware that his place in their house is probably a couch here and there. And mm. he needs a home. He needs somewhere where, you know, he's not going to be moving from one person's place to another. So I went completely off script for about about 10 minutes back there. And I'm looking over my notes and I realise we've talked about so many of these these wonderful uh, questions. Well, I hope they were wonderful questions. You're not going to get to hear them now. Um, I feel like, though, I ask a version of this question of every author who has a wonderful ensemble of characters. And, and that's exactly what the place on Dalhousie has. How do you know when to draw the line? How do you know? Do you ever want to just go away and explore one of Jimmy's friends' lives for a few chapters or, you know, you want to know a little bit more about what happens to Eugenia when she goes back uh, to to Sicily. (laughs) Um, It's difficult, but you make that decision at the beginning that it's a three-hander. Um, and in actual fact, it was a challenge for me because I thought there were going to be four narrators, Ewan being one of them. And I'm glad I didn't. I, I'm glad I could still use him as a character and he didn't have to have a point of view. Um, but I just felt that the story had to be told through the eyes of people living in that house or connected to that house. Um, and, you know, I had to stick to that rule because, of course, you do. There were moments where I thought with, you know, her grandmother, why can't she live in Australia? And then I thought, well, she can't because you can't get citizenship here, you know, especially someone who really doesn't contribute in any way um, financially. So th- there were there are people in your novels, you can't solve all their problems, but you might send them off with a good state of mind. And um, it is difficult because you do, you want to include so much more that is episodic and you think, no, that's got nothing to, t- to do with that main story. And, you know, even in other books, um, I remember in The Piper's Son, I really wanted um, Francesca from Saving Francesca's Boyfriend in it. But really, in a way, he didn't need to be in it. But just because he was in Saving Francesca, you know, I wanted him in it. So I had to make him work for it. And he had to play a part in Tom's journey. So you're constantly making your characters work for that storyline. And if they're not working, you've got to send them away. Mm. You know, you send them overseas. <laughs> <laughs> I am discussing The Place on Dalhousie with its wonderful author, Milena Marquetta. Uh, thank you so much for indulging my questions. Thank uh, you. Milena is going to be at Sydney Writers' Festival coming up at the end of the month. So do get along and check out, check out hear more wonderful things about the place of Dalhousie. And you now have a couple of weeks to read it before you see her again. Thank you so much for coming into the studio, Milena. Thank you. That's it for this great conversation with Milena Marquetta. Milena's latest novel is The Place on Dalhousie, and it's out now through Penguin Books. 
Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. You can click subscribe in your podcast app too and you'll get a new Great Conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel and I'll be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Till then...